Is this thing on? I think so. The light's there. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Pat. This is Posh. And this is the Founder Hour podcast. We're glad you're here. We have a big episode coming up, but before we get into it, we just wanted to remind you guys to please subscribe, leave us a rating, and a review, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook at The Founder Hour. Thank you guys for being here. Spread the word and enjoy the show. What's going on, everybody? This is the Founder Hour podcast, and we're super excited to be sitting down with Stuart Landsberg. Is that how you pronounce it? Landsberg? But I'm pretty flexible. Landisberg. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, we always like to start off um, kind of going back back to like the early days. So tell us um, about your upbringing and maybe some stuff that you were into as a kid that you can remember that you really loved. Yeah. So I grew up in northern Westchester County, which is sort of like somewhere between uh, a normal suburb and a rural like upstate New York place and a town called Katona. And as a kid, I think probably most people consider themselves to be pretty normal kids, um, you know, like to play outside. My family was pretty focused on sustainability. I you know, compost bin in the backyard. I thought paper towels were all brown until I was, I don't know, like 17 years old. Um, and yeah, I mean, I always, I guess, worked pretty hard in school, but wasn't, wasn't any more motivated or any less motivated than I think average. And, um, you know, was lucky to have a, uh, parents who were mostly around and have three younger siblings who were wonderful and who, with whom I did my fair share of battle during my formative years. Um, but we're all now quite close as, uh, I think either because of, or despite all of the turmoil in, in the early years. And I know you went to school at Amherst, you know, which is one, probably one of the best, you know, liberal arts colleges in the country, if not the best, uh, you know, why did you make that decision uh, to go towards a more liberal arts education versus, you know, going to, you know, one of these research universities? Well, it's, it's a nice thing for you to say about Amherst. I can't speak to how it ranks on the national scale, but I can certainly tell you that it is better than Williams College. Uh, that's the only thing I know for sure. Uh, I think my, my future sister-in-law is going to be very upset about that statement because I think she went there. But I also oh. checked and Williams is officially number one now. So, you know. We'll see. I one don't know and two, who one and two. Those are. That sounds sounds biased to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So for me, I, I had never. I didn't grow up knowing that I wanted to be a doctor, and therefore I was going to sort of do step A and B and C and D. You know, I've always been someone who I think enjoys learning, enjoys engaging with other people. I really enjoy discussion, dialogue, debate. Sort of enjoy uncertainty. And the I, I went to Amherst because small class sizes, a really nice community vibe. And ultimately, I think, you know, one of the things I got from Amherst as a result of the small class sizes was a willingness to question authority because the professors there really are, I don't know, can't speak to how they are today, but at least in my time, were quite accessible to students. And, you know, almost to a degree, I can no longer believe now that I, I no longer have quite the same level of 19 year old hubris um you know we're open to being questioned by by the students that's awesome and what was probably one of your biggest takeaways as a student i mean did you know at the time after or i guess when you were finishing your time there had you figured out what you wanted to do and what were some of the biggest takeaways uh from that degree that you got yeah i had no idea but I'll tell you an interesting story about my time in Amherst. So when I went to Amherst, my father, who went to um, a significantly inferior liberal arts college where your sister-in-law may have gone, um, <laughs> was, you know, I, I went there and had sort of a B, B-plus average my freshman year. And I remember distinctly over the summer, he was like, that's pretty good. I don't think you could do better than that. And I, I don't know if he was being overly wise or just got lucky. And we bet you know, the thing that you bet your 19 year old son, uh, like he would pay for a spring break trip versus I would do 20 hours of work in his office, uh, that I could get straight A's the following year. And that was really motivating. And, uh, I think I learned, I, I'm relatively competitive. And so I didn't want to lose that bet, 
and I didn't lose. But the thing that I, I got out of it was a sense of accomplishment just from sort of like really pushing through that stuck with me since then. And it changed the level of commitment I had to my academics and candidly changed the way I approach you know, work product of any sort. Uh, that's really stuck with me. But by the time I graduated, I'd done reasonably well academically, not like first in my class or anything, but reasonably well, but had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I just did the thing that my friends who also did reasonably well academically, um, and I guess in retrospect, probably also had no idea what they wanted to do in the long term, uh, did and went into finance. Um, definitely want to talk about uh, after college, but you mentioned growing up, you know, you were around your household, like was very sustainable and and practice sustainability a lot. Um, where did that come from? Like, what, like I guess, was it your parents or was it generations before that? Like, where did that really stem from? I think it came from my parents. You know, they both have a little bit of a progressive rebel streak in them, when especially when it comes to sustainability. I think my my father, and I'm not sure if this is true or just a legend over the years, dropped out with one semester left in Williams in protest of the Vietnam War, um, which I'm sure made his immigrant parents like extremely happy. Uh, <laughs> and you know, when when I was a kid, it was the late '80s. Seventh Generation had just come out, and it started actually as a catalog business. And I think my parents were like the biggest customers from the seventh generation catalog in 1989 um, and were really ahead of their time when it came to thinking about the environment and buying natural products and just being conscientious about the impact of our lives. And when you're a youngster, right, however you grow up, that's your lens on the world. And I didn't realize that this was any different from how most people grew up until, you know, much later. That's awesome. You mentioned that you might have worked for your dad if you lost that, but what did your dad do? Was he entrepreneurial? I mean, I'm curious, like, where the eventual entrepreneurship gene uh, in you came from. My dad is an entrepreneur of sorts. He inherited a business from his father selling aftermarket industrial friction materials um, when mostly truck and bus brakes. And if you think about sort of in Tommy Boy, they sell brake shoes. He sells the thing that the shoe goes into, which is not nearly as good a business because it's sort of like you only sell the razor handle, but not the razor blade. Um, small market. I can get into the dynamics. My dad has you know, successfully kept a relatively small business afloat through you know ups and downs in the economic markets in a uh, you know, sort of in a space that hasn't seen a lot of secular growth. And I, you know, as a kid on the weekends, I would like sit in the passenger seat of his car and we'd like drive to repair shops and he'd sell brakes to the people who like work in repair shops. Um, you know, we didn't do that every weekend, but saw a bunch of that. And no doubt the first hundred dollars I ever earned were earned over the course of like 25 hours doing filing work for my dad in a, I don't know, like 600 square foot office. Right. I mean, did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy seeing him? you know, you know, selling and, you know, making something of himself. Did you ever think that that's something you would want to do where you were in charge of the product? You were the one selling, you were the face of something. It's an interesting question. I don't think I understood that it was his company, right? I, I don't think I understood that like, oh, there's a CEO and you have people who, I don't think I understood any of that, but my dad is definitely a good salesperson, loves to talk and has more charisma than I could hope to inherit in my life. Um, and I, I do think that I picked up a little bit of a willingness to do things that are a bit against the grain from him. Um, because, you know, if you, if you look out at the Williams College class of 1969 or whenever it was, you know, most of those people probably weren't selling heavy-duty industrial friction materials. Like, you know, it, he, but he did, uh, and he still, still, still does it today. Um, works hard, loves it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think a lot of my understanding that in order for business to happen, it's normal for you to be the person that does it right. Like business isn't some machine that you show up to and the machine works, but you no, know, you, you turn the crank of the machine to get output. I think that that probably did come from watching him over the many years, you know, 
spent he didn't spend a ton of time on the road, but it stood out when he did and the time in his office. And I can still name, you know, the top 10 accounts of his from, from my childhood. That's awesome. Um, I think, so you mentioned you, you worked in finance and I, I think I saw that you worked at Lehman Brothers after college. So, uh, that, and I think it was like about a year you were there, um, which we all know what happened. So tell us a little bit about your experience. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you were really excited to, to start working there and then everything collapsed. So tell us, tell us how your experience was personally. Yeah, I showed up bright eyed and bushy tailed and I had no idea as no one did sort of what I was getting into, you know, it was a really interesting experience. You get to 10,000 hours uh, of work really fast in finance. I think that's one of the, one of the blessings. Um, And there were a lot of really great people who worked at Lehman. It was, it was really sad when the company went bankrupt. You know, I'd only been working there probably nine months and was fortunate to have a bunch of great friendships from those nine months that carry me through today. But the most impactful thing in that experience, you know, watching this company go from a what is you know at one point considered to be a, a true sort of pillar and titan of the finance world to bankruptcy in nine months was pretty incredible. You know, people who'd spent 30, 40 years of their career there and never sold a share of stock, you know, watching their livelihoods wiped out. And the thing that I really took most from the whole experience, I guess there was two things. The first was just how human business is overall, right? Like even a place like Lehman Brothers, there's no Lehman Brothers. There's just a bunch of people showing up and working on the same team to get something done. And, you know, that means in in good times, you know, it feels like a machine where everything is really humming. But the second lesson was how important every link in the business chain was. Because when things started to go bad, it was impossible. Like the the things stopped functioning, and it really, you know, when I think about the corest belief that I have as a CEO, it really is all about people. And I think that's one of the things that the Lehman bankruptcy taught me is, you know, people are at the heart of when things are going well, and people are the thing when things go badly. You know, really, in ups and downs, is all about all about the the individuals that are a part of it. Yeah. And speaking on that point, like in any business that is suffering, um, a lot of times morale can really be, be hit hard in those periods until the company either finds a way to sell or, or shuts down. And, and I don't remember quite exactly how it was at Lehman, but was it like a slow burn? Like when you first got there, did you already see, you know, it in motion as far as, it, or was it like a quick, just that's it? Oh, we sure didn't feel it in motion when we got there. I mean, we were on top of the world when we arrived. You know, you, it's so exciting. Like you're on Wall Street and you go into the big buildings and I don't know, I like it owned one suit in my life before that, maybe. And I like my like, you know, Brooks Brothers tie on and now to change the world. It's really exciting. I think inside of Lehman, I think every company is different, right? Every company has different DNA. And I give Lehman credit, or at least the teams and the people that I work with credit for being high integrity through it all, um, you know, trying to serve the client really well through the very end, the senior people trying to be there for the junior people, the junior people trying to console the senior people. And, you know, ultimately the investment bank was sold to Barclays. And I think the reason why there was, was even anything left to sell was that the, there were a lot of good people in that organization who had nothing to do with the outsized risk that the overall bank had taken. And you know, those people just wanted to do what they thought was best to serve their clients and help their colleagues. Um, and you know, when things started going badly, I think there was a little bit of a sense of disbelief. And you know, I like I remember I bought like a thousand dollars worth of Lehman Brothers stock. And I was like, didn't have a lot of savings back then. I was I had like stock was like five dollars. I was like, supporting the home team. You know, just, people wanted wanted it to come out differently than it did. Um, really wanted it to come out differently. And you, and you talk about how many hours goes into working in finance and how quickly you get to that 10,000 hour point. And so I guess for you, I'm sure you learned a lot in those nine months. Did you like working in finance? Like, was that something that you were, you felt this like, I guess, calling or passion for, or um, was it just like, you just felt like it was more of like a job? I loved the people who I worked with and I love working. I like, I love 
it's going to sound lame. Like I love being in Excel and building models, even still, like the team doesn't really let me get into the model anymore, but I like to. Um, and so I liked it in that regard. I think for me, I was really lucky. I worked at, uh, at Lehman and then worked at another firm called Texas Pacific Group, which is another firm I, I can speak really highly of both in terms of the individuals there, the integrity with which they did their job. And at that firm, the, the attempt to integrate sustainability into long-term investment horizons at a scale that important to be successful. Um, and I think throughout that, I loved the work. I loved the fact that you get to work with companies and with entrepreneurs and to, you know, people who build businesses, they're not professional fundraisers. They don't understand, okay, well, here's how you market a security or whatever it is, right? And you're really helping entrepreneurs either ideally grow their business. Um, and that was something I really loved. I think on the personal side, over time working in finance, the elements of it that appealed to me always appealed to me. But ultimately, I was working 80 plus hours a week for a long time and wanted that 80 plus hours a week to make the world a better place if I was going to keep doing it. Um, You know, I I don't drive a fancy car. I like, you know, don't, I don't know. I like wasn't super motivated by that stuff. Um, But I... And so I, I don't know, I just, I started wanting to get up in the morning and work 80 hours towards something that, uh, that advanced a mission I really cared about as kind of cheesy as that, I guess, sounds in retrospect. And that was ultimately why I left finance to start Grove. Um, turns out I had a million things I didn't know. And oh my gosh, was I naive about how easy it'd be to transfer the skills of being an investor to being an operator. Like, boy, was I naive in that moment. Yeah. You talk about this mission that you had uh, or have, which was, you know, to change the world, you know, just to kind of play devil's advocate, you know, you hear that said a lot. I mean, a lot of people want to change the world, right? And, you know, everybody has their own definition of what it means to change the world, right? Some want to, you know, change the world by, you know, enriching their future families and friends' lives through whatever philanthropy or whatever it may be. Right. But what was your definition or what is your definition of, I want to change the world? Yeah. Thank you for asking the question because everybody markets a mission. Now, if you're a business owner, that's not marketing a mission, you know, you're like, you missed it because mission is the thing that matters most. When I think about why the best people who work at Grove work at Grove, it's because of the mission of the company. It's because of the sense of purpose and our company vision statement, and we're not, we're not going to solve every single one of the world's problems, but we have a very specific one that we're trying to tackle, which is the negative impact of consumerism on the environment. And our vision statement is that consumer product will be a positive force for human and environmental health. Positive force, not just less bad, but actually more good. And if you think about the categories in which we operate, you know, take laundry detergent. The U.S. alone puts a billion, with a B, plastic laundry detergent bottles into oceans and landfills every year. That's just laundry detergent bottles. Like, think about uh, if you look at the impact of our household paper consumption as a society, we've wiped out, I don't know the exact number offhand, but it's something like 80%, 85% of the old growth redwoods in Canada have been turned into toilet paper. Like That's embarrassing as a society, and we can help address some of these problems. And so the change that we are really trying to seek is to, at least in our category at first, but hopefully to be an inspiration and others will follow, make make it such that every time you buy a product, the ecosystem that that product touches is, is better off. I'll give you a great example of that. So in the paper category, we launched a brand called Seedling, which is made from tree-free toilet paper. It's made from bamboo. Uh, sorry, it's not made from tree-free toilet paper. It is tree-free paper uh, made from bamboo which is a grass, not a tree, grows um, about five times, sorry, grows 30 times as quickly as traditional softwoods and sequesters about five times as much carbon. So has a real sustainability impact from the source. And then for every purchase of seedling, we plant trees in the US in partnership with the Arbor Day Foundation. And through 2022, I think we'll plant a million trees in the US. And so in a really weird way, every time you use a sheet of seedling paper towel, you're actually helping forest ecosystems in the U.S. And you know, that's a business model where we took a category that's had a massive negative environmental impact 
and flipped it on its head such that every time someone consumes a whatever seedling product, you actually have a positive impact, not just less bad like recycled paper, but a positive impact. And you know, that is our goal is to, to start with our category, but hopefully to be a catalyst for everyone to see that we're not going to be able to stop consumerism as a society, but we can make, we can use consumerism, we can use business to actually heal so many of the environmental and human health problems that have been created through a system where profits have been prioritized over human and environmental health. And I'm going to stop myself there or I can keep rolling. I want to talk about this intersection of sustainability and business as a lot of people might know it, like the the business in a sense of a for-profit company that you know, makes money. And, and I think a lot of time, you know, a lot of people throughout history or uh, up until now, like have, have seen it maybe as a mutually exclusive thing where, you know, a lot of times some of the biggest, not only environmental issues, but societal issues are, are tough to figure out through business. And so I guess w- I'm just trying to c- kind of understand your thought process of when you were starting Grove, were you thinking of it more from the, the issue or more from how can I create a business that solves that issue, if that makes sense. Of course. So I believe that business is the most important organizing principle in the world today and that it will be for the next hundred years. Capitalism has made business the most important organizing principle of the human species. And I mean, if you think about where do humans spend 80% of their time, like work, at least awake time, like people say, they don't say, where do you work? They say, what do you do? Right? Like business is... I think the most important principle in terms of what direction society goes in. And I believe, and I'm an optimist, I admit to it, but I believe that the next generation of people who are really excellent care about the mark that they leave on the world. And to recruit the best people to retain and drive the most compelling results, we can no longer ignore all of the stakeholder groups. That's customers, community, environment, our employees, like all of that stuff has to get included, in my opinion, for for business success over the next hundred years. That wasn't true over the last hundred years. I think over the last hundred years, a lot of profit has been made by, I will sell you a bottle of something and the cost of that bottle to society, which is going to take a thousand years to degrade, some future generation is going to deal with that cost. I'm only interested in profiting off whatever's inside that bottle. Like that model of not caring about the externality of one's business as long as the bottom line is protected. I just think that model is is bygone. And I am an optimist yeah. that the businesses of the next 20 years will care about all stakeholder groups. What do you think it's going to take to get it to that point? Do you think it's going to be consumers who push the brands of today and tomorrow to operate that way? Or is it going to be these, not not so much visionaries, because it is like, it is the future. Like we have to be cognizant of, of what we're building and what we're doing to our environment. Is it going to be the entrepreneurs and the business leaders that put that put their foot forward and say like, this is how we're going to do things? Or is it going to be consumers demanding that of the companies? Or is it going to be both? It's such a symbiosis. When I think about Grove, I am so lucky to have such an amazing community of customers who support what we're doing. And you know, when I tell people that I sell sustainable toilet paper on the internet, folks usually assume that our customers are only located in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, LA, Boston. But that's not true. We do just as well in Kansas as we do in California. You know, we do as well in Utah as in Oregon. Our best three zip codes are actually in Utah, Texas, and Tennessee. Like this, being a a thoughtful homemaker, which is really what Grove, sort of Grove sweet spot, is something that people sort of across economic, political, a lot of divides can embrace. And the fact that so many people have embraced being a thoughtful homemaker and being thoughtful about their impact of their decisions on the next generation, you know, that created the opportunity that I'm lucky enough to have it grow. And I think it, it really is sort of a symbiosis of, you know, like I, I think about plastic waste as another great issue. Yeah. Like there's no one that's pro plastic waste. Right. And so like the fact that people are paying attention to that creates an opportunity for a company like Grove 
to do something that's aligned with their values. And, you know, it, it goes back and forth and we're, we're lucky to have our community. And I think that's true for a lot of the companies that have driven positive change. Stuart, when and how did that shift take place in society from, you know, we're selling you this bottle that's a plastic bottle with soap in there. All we care about is the profit to consumers actually giving a shit about like what that, you know, product contains and what it does with the environment. What was there this significant turning point? Was there a moment in time that that shift took place? I mean, I, I don't know about it, so I'm curious about your answer. It's not a moment in time thing. I think this is a long-term trend. And I like how you talk about it as, is there a moment when this happened? As though it has happened, right? Natural brands have less than 5% share in almost every category. Consumer education is still moving up the curve, but I think one of the really wonderful things about the internet is it it really has democratized access to product and democratized access to information. And so you think about something like the Roundup verdict, which you know pretty clearly communicated a bunch of the dangers of chemicals people you know always assume to be benign. And you think about stuff like that, which are getting more attention than ever before, and forever, you, you want a brand of laundry detergent, your choices are whatever's on the shelf at Walmart, whatever's on the shelf at Target, whatever's on the shelf at your local grocer, you know, and that's kind of it, right? Whatever's on the shelf in driving distance. And the fact that we can go directly to our consumers changed what people had access to. And a combination of better informed consumers about the environmental impact of their choices, better informed consumers about the health impact of their choices, and Biz, the, the sort of like existence of business models like ours, where we don't need to go through some third party intermediary to reach our consumer, I think has allowed people to demonstrate sort of their, their true preferences and their buying patterns in a way that, that had never been possible before. So I think your why is very clear, right, about why you started Grove and what your mission is. So now I'm curious about, you know, when you transition from finance to being an entrepreneur, um, you know, what was that like, right? I know, I'm sure it was challenging, but, you know, did you have any savings? Did you have, you know, room to fail? How, how many years did you have, you know, that buffer for? Like, tell us a little bit about those earlier days when you were starting uh, Grove. Yeah. So I could not have been more naive when I started Grove about what it would take to start a consumer internet business. I just would like had a bunch of hubris and thought that it would be not necessarily easy, but that success in one field meant that, you know, you knew how to do business and I've got air quotes around business. Um, And so those first, those first four years before we really raised institutional capital were so hard. And you know, we were supposed to be an internet company. We didn't launch our website for like 14 months after I started the company. And, you know, to answer your question, did I have savings? I had a little bit of savings. I worked in finance for five years and, you know, didn't have sort of like years of cash in the bank, but lived a fairly modest lifestyle and put gas in the Prius, like, you know. Um, And so I didn't take a salary, I think, for the first two years. And you still take a relatively modest salary. And but you know the the fact that I had a couple of years of experience, it wasn't so much the financial resource; it was the confidence to start that was was really differentiating. I think um, you know I don't want to short sell short people who don't have savings. I know there's a lot of amazing entrepreneurs who started without that, and that was definitely a privilege that I had. Um, but for me, you know, the thing that I needed to get started was was the confidence, and I had that confidence, and then. You know, within you start something and two years later hasn't really worked. You get that confidence starts to get shot, and at least in my experience, you know, my self worth. I like told you that story with so much pride about sophomore year in college, getting straight A's. Like my self worth is is in part always been tied to accomplishment. And I'll tell you, you know, two years into a startup, not having made significant progress, not having been able to even really raise a seed round like very few customers, very little to speak of. It's hard, right? It starts it started to, for me to challenge my like self-image of who I, who I am. 
And, you know, years one through four were grueling. I think running an undercapitalized business is, there are so many people who run small businesses in this country and oh my gosh, is it hard to run a small and undercapitalized business? I like have much respect for all of the entrepreneurs out there. Cause for me, it was such a challenging time and there were silver linings that founded the company with two other folks and those folks made it through those four years with me and are still on the team today and are two of my best friends. Uh, I met my wife about six, seven months into Grove. And I remember her explicitly being like, yeah, I'm going to pay for dinner. Cause like this guy, this guy's never going to be able to earn, an, <laughs> earn a real paycheck. Uh, and anyway, so those, those first four years were really hard. Um, and at the end of four years, we, we had a really pivotal moment. We changed the name of the company and had not very much cash in the bank. And we basically changed the name of the company through all the money we had in marketing to try to get the thing to grow and took it out to pitch investors. And we pitched 175. It's not an exaggeration. 175? Yeah, 175 introductions. I got 75 first meetings out of 175 intros and no one said yes. But one firm I thought was close. And so I called the partner and I was just like, Paul, there's a price. There's got to be a price at which you'd invest in this company. And what were uh, you, what were you pitching? What was it? Was it like, like, were you, go, were you planning on, or I guess talk to us about how it started. Like with any sort of marketplace business, you know, you need supply and you need demand, right? So yeah. um, were you working with brands to, like, you know, were you identifying these brands and sort of curating them and, and were you buying the inventory and storing it and then selling it to the customer or was it like drop shipping? Like how, how did you get it started? Yeah. I have to say the, the story of Grove, it's really, you know, you overestimate what you can do in a, in a year or in a month, but you underestimate what you can do in 10 years. I am a little bit like, how the hell did we get from like that to here? But anyway, so for the first year, we didn't have a website and we acquired customers through a PowerPoint presentation and we would like email them when their recurring shipment came up. And we offered three brands, four brands, Method, Mrs. Myers, Seventh Generation, but only their paper products and Green Forest, a recycled paper brand. And that was it for the first like year or two. And every day at the end of the day, we worked in this like tiny little accelerator rocket space. And I had gotten one of the rocket space like staff guys to give me the key to this, you know, they used to have uh, like cages around your electronics equipment back when there were server rooms, like back when people had servers on site, there's a cage around an old server room in the basement. And we went in, cleared a bunch of trash out of it. And we used that as like a mini warehouse at the end of every day. And we like filled it with product from Amazon at the end of every day for the first two years, like me and one or two other guys would go down and we like pack up three or four boxes and we'd put them on a dolly and we'd walk them four blocks to the UPS store, try to get there before the UPS store closed down. And I remember vividly when we moved out of that cage in the basement, which in retrospect was just like such an insane insurance and fire hazard, like how that happened, I cannot believe, to an 800 square foot mini storage unit, like, you know, where people are storing their couches. We took like an 800 square foot unit and we filled it with like the most beautifully merchandised, uh, like quote unquote warehouse. And I remember, you know, one day we had a hundred orders and the whole team went down to this 800 square foot unit SF mini storage, packed boxes until like 10 at night, drinking beers. But most days we got like six or seven orders. Um, And eventually, uh, you know, we started to grow. We started to add brands. We moved from 800 square feet into 2000 square feet at a different mini storage. And I remember being like, this is the biggest warehouse in the world. 2,000 square foot mini storage, you know. Uh, I was like, I'm embarrassed now, like, thinking about how small it was. But, you know, I was so proud of it. And um, and from there, you know, we were in that place for, like, another year or two. And from there, we got an 8,000 square foot unit in South San Francisco, which was just ours. But then it was too big. And we had to, like, sublet 2,000 square feet of it out. And then we took a big jump and opened a fulfillment center in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just went like a little bit at a time from 100% third-party product. And you know, in 2016, when we changed the name of the company from ePantry, which is the old name, to Grove, to test that, we had like three products under our own brand, candles, pop-up sponges, and dish towels. 
Um, and we called that brand Grove just to see if people liked it. But like the level of, I don't know if you want to call it scrappy or resourceful. Like we would get these like giant boxes of uh, pop-up sponges that came by like by the thousand. We'd put them in the conference room. And anytime anyone was on a conference call, they'd put them in three packs wrapped in craft paper, stamp them and tie a little piece of string on them. And I remember in a 60 minute call, I could do like, you know, 50 or so of these three packs. And like, that was how we made our own brand products in the early days. And, you know, eventually we moved that process down to our fulfillment center. And now we don't like, you know, buy in a thousand and pack them all by hand. We have actual manufacturing processes. Um, but it was really piece by piece. And it's amazing how much time has accelerated in the last few years. But those first four years, I mean, our first dish towels, which I think was our kitchen towel, which is our first own brand product. We bought a thousand unit overstock from like, I don't remember, some sportswear, like some random thing online. We're like, these look cool. And they're only like 99 cents each. We'll just buy them, rip the care labels out of them so no one can tell that they're a different brand and then wrap them in paper and stamp them with Grove. <laughs> and that was, that was what we did for our first thousand kitchen towels. Um, yeah, much different now. It's like organic cotton. We have people who go to the factories and make sure they're using fair labor practices and all of the ethical supply chain things you'd hope. But I remember like ripping the, ripping the, the labels out of a thousand kitchen towels with the team in, the, in our first office. So Stuart, you mentioned, you know, just kind of packing these things up and having four brands early on and then adding more on what, I mean, what kind of deals or what kind of partnerships did you have with these brands? Were you just buying them, you know, wholesale pricing and then, you know, putting them in boxes and subscription and having a subscription service. What was, what, what did it look like in the early days in terms of the operational back end of um, how you guys were aggregating and curating these products and then sending it off to consumers? Yeah. So I had read that Mark Laurie in the early days of diapers.com would just sort of buy the product at retail and ship it out. And that was how he got his business started. And I was really unafraid to do that. So for the first two years, I think we bought the product on Amazon. I remember one time Mrs. Myers.com was having a 30% off sale. And I was like, take out the credit card, buy like a thousand dollars of product, 30% off. Um, and so yeah, for the first couple of years, we just bought the product at retail and then resold it. But we were really lucky to have partners who believe, saw the vision and believed in us. You know, I think of someone like seven, seven, eight, 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 eight. Sorry, selling what? at retail or were you reselling so we at retail or were you marketing? Yeah. No, we sell the product at the same price we bought it at, sometimes less. Just to get an audience just to test if the business model was working. You know, we weren't trying to figure out, hey, can we make money with 5,000 customers? Really, it was all about in the early days figuring out, hey, is this a business model that people like? How do we build a service that people want? And the goal was never to make money in the early days. It was just, can we get enough volume flowing through the pipes here that we can, we can actually learn where we're delivering value to the consumer and where we're not? And we got enough enough sort of overall flow in the first four years to make a bunch of pivots. You know, we grew in 2016, I think we grew like 80% year over year. In 2017, we grew 450% year over year. Like, you know, we just figured a lot of stuff out from the learnings that we'd gotten in those first four years. And we haven't really changed the business model significantly since we made all those pivots in 2016. And so what was like, what was the big value add to the customer that, for example, like, let's say they liked Mrs. Myers and they could obviously go on Mrs. Myers website and buy it themselves if they wanted to after they had found out about it from Grove or uh, ePantry. So uh, was it more like, was it more like you were just, obviously, first of all, you're like curating all these really good products for the whole kind of holistic, you know, household or everything just, you know, but like, was it more than that? Was it like, what was the biggest thing that you saw as feedback from your customers that this is why we come to you as opposed to, to the brands directly? So there, there's a bunch of really great questions in there, which get to sort of like, what is our core value proposition to the consumer, right? Why are we willing, able to win, win hearts and minds? And I think it's the, the most interesting fact about Grove from a customer-based perspective that I never would have predicted is that 50% of our customers had never tried any of the brands that we sell. Zero. They've never even tried a hand soap from any of them. Like, totally new to the category. 
and the value and 90 plus percent are trying new products. So the value add is people want to be conscientious homemakers. They want to be the best version of themselves. Our platform makes that really easy and it makes it really easy to create that positive habit and then keep it. And I think that was the original value proposition. Today, the business is more than 50% brands that we own. We're 100% plastic neutral. So every ounce of plastic you buy from us, we offset. You know, you buy that same brand from Target. They're not offsetting that plastic for you, right? So you're, there's a number of things that we do now from price, customer service, assortment, differentiated product that have bolstered our value proposition. But at the core of it, it's about helping people transition into natural products in a way that feels safe and easy and approachable in a category where most folks have assumed that natural products are not efficacious or too expensive or too complicated. And just creating that sense of trust with our consumer is that is the thing that has guided us from the very beginning. And one question that comes to mind when I first learned about Grove and you know now hearing from you is how is it different then in terms of the customer experience, right? Like I shop on Amazon all the time and now you see like the subscribe and save feature where you can like subscribe and I don't know, you get a bunch of these products all the time, right? Uh, like on a, on a subscription basis. What differentiates Grove and the service and the value that you're providing to your customers versus them going on Amazon and buying Mrs. Myers from there or any other brand for that matter? There's a couple of really concrete ones. I'll start with those, but I think the biggest is emotional. So the concrete ones is we tend to be lower price, better customer service, better assortment in the brands that we carry, and more than half our sales are brands that we created and aren't on Amazon. So you know, right now it's price, customer service, assortment, sort of like speed of shipping and everything ships in one box, and uh, sort of like product diversity and that most of the products are not actually even available on Amazon. So now we're, we're pretty differentiated. But I think the thing that made us successful, even when we were small and didn't have a lot of those advantages, was that if you if you type in dish soap on Amazon, your natural dish soap on Amazon, you're likely to see a bunch of sponsored search results. And for consumers who are getting into this category for the first time, the natural sort of category for the first time in a bunch of these places, like it's about trust, it's about emotion. And where you buy the products in your household says something about you as a homemaker, as a mother, as a father, as a roommate, whatever it is, it says something about who you are. And if you look at Chewy, which is a terrific business in the pet space, you know, buying from Chewy, which is a company that clearly loves their customers and loves pets, it says something about you as a pet parent. And I think buying from Grove says something about you as a homemaker. And you know, you type in dish soap on Grove, you know that every result there is high integrity. Every single result you should feel great about buying. And that's not necessarily true in, a, in the everything store. I think that emotion that we deliver where everything about buying from Grove makes you feel good about yourself for buying from Grove is at the core of the brand. And it's also why we've been able to go from you know, 0% our own brand to more than 50% as quickly as we have, right? That trust with the consumer, you know, it's not about the retail platform. It's like, it's about the brand experience with Grove. And obviously we deliver innovative product, but I think overall, you know, that emotional resonance is stronger than any one particular experience. I'm sure you've learned a lot of things being now a CEO for, it's been almost what, over 10 years. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned being a CEO and being in charge of a team of, you know, thousand plus people, I believe at this point, um, yeah. I'm sure there's so many things, but what would be like the top three things that you've picked up along the way? Number zero, people. People matter more than every, anything. Like, you know, if you, you give me the best business model in the world, I'd rather take the best team in the world. And I am so grateful for the team at Grove. Just so many brilliant, dedicated, hardworking, high integrity people at the company. And I am so grateful every day for the partnership that I get from our team. I really am. Um, and I think that's about like, what you look for at, like, or what you were looking for initially when you're growing the team and, and maybe some of the um, things that you've implemented, like core values, you know, in, in your hiring process that 
that have, have built that team around you? Yeah. So I look for really three things. The first is character. And that's just like a threshold thing. Trust. I mean, trust is the most foundational piece of business communication. And that that's about transparency. That's about integrity. And that's about, you know, everybody doing the right thing when the lights are off and when nobody's watching. And it's easy to, you know, close your eyes for one second on this issue and all of a sudden end up with a culture that you don't recognize. And so character integrity is number one. Number two is I look for folks who, who do their jobs for fun. Uh, you know, people who've built side businesses at some point in their career in the field that they work in are my favorite people to hire. You know, if you're an engineer, did you build a side project? That was awesome because you love writing software. Um, you know, if you work in ops, did you help your friend get his project, off, his or her project off the ground and help them get it set up because you love doing ops stuff, right? Like people who love what they do so much, they kind of do it on the side for free. Um, because those people are going to love their job and they're going to love their job every day. And the third people, the third thing is a real bias towards action because I think in a startup, the, the machine doesn't move. You have to, you have to turn, the, turn the crank. And there's, a, there's an expression that I'm going to get wrong, which is that you know, a perfect plan executed in a week is not as good as an imperfect plan executed with vigor today. And it's impossible to have a perfect plan in any of this. But you really can control whether or not you're taking action and taking another step forward every day. And so I am I am always always feel gratitude for team members who are, you know, every day pushing the ball forward and not waiting for permission to make progress. So it's really it's about integrity, passion for the job, and then a a willingness and desire to be a self-starter, even if that entails a bit of risk. So those are the, I think the sub bullet points of people, but I think there's like two or three more you were talking about as far as learnings of, as a CEO. Yeah. So we asked for three. I'm tempted to say people three times in a row, uh, but, but I won't. I'll say number one is people. Number two is clarity of vision. When I think of the biggest mistakes that we've made, they all come from not being true to our vision and our mission. And it took me a long time to even get to the point where I understood why it was relevant to lay out our long-term vision clearly. But now that now I understand so well the power of well-aligned teams and the power of a well-articulated vision to keep people making decisions that align and fit together like puzzle pieces in a world where you know perfect communication is impossible. And so the second thing I would say is, you know, a, a well thought out, well articulated set of principles and long-term vision is invaluable. And the third thing is focus. There's a great saying that companies die of indigestion, not starvation. That's, that's not mine. Um, and I, I really find that to be true. The moments where I have seen the most success are when we are like back against the wall, totally focused on the core problem, like the core nugget at the soul of the business. And the moments when I think I or the company has performed the least well is when we have the luxury of letting our focus be spread. And I, I would, would rather work on one problem and solve it so well than attempt to solve three problems or five problems just okay. And it means comfort leaving chips on the table, totally. Um, but I, I, have, I cannot learn the lesson enough times that focus is extraordinarily valuable, especially in small companies. You know, early on, you obviously had trouble raising money and, and not necessarily because it was you're doing but i mean after 175 conversation or after 175 you know emails and 75 conversations was it was difficult to get that money initially right but since then you've raised 200 million dollars right how has that process become uh simpler for you i guess in a sense or how have you been able to find more success raising money uh now than you did before a number of things. The first is I have great mentors who have helped me understand how to build the business in a better way. And I have not always been fast enough to listen to the advice of mentors and board members and folks like that. But eventually I come around and um, that's helped everything from how I position the business to how I run our daily meetings. Um, and I think, you know, as business quality improved, it got easier to tell that story. But I think the middle point there 
of being really clear about the North Star is especially important in raising money when people are looking for asymmetric returns, right? Where you could make a ton of money and really see the company being uh, tens of billions of dollars or a larger public company that exists for decades beyond. And the thing that I, I think I understood most in 2016 in the pivot is that the opportunity for growth became clear. When I first started it, I saw it as a way to get people from conventional to natural, um, to use sort of direct to consumer to do that. But once I got into it, I realized the opportunity was way bigger and that all, everyone in CPG, non-food CPG, was so focused on brick and mortar still that the opportunity to build a brand or a set of brands that are digital first, not just a retail channel, but a set of brands that are digital first, you know, that's how the next P&G is going to get built. It's not going to get built with a focus on brick and mortar. It's going to get built with an amazing community of customers giving direct feedback and creating a cycle of innovation that's way faster than any big CPG could possibly hope. And once I understood that the North Star was to be you know, the next Procter & Gamble, the next Unilever, like the next one of these great consumer products companies, that vision became easier for us to execute against and easier for us to communicate to third-party stakeholders, which in turn made it easier to raise money. Um, so that was part one. And part two is we're in an unsexy category, right? Particularly the, in group, the group that makes investments, you know, they're not doing the dishes 15 times a week, like our customer is. And so a lot of them sort of didn't understand why this category is emotional and why or how anyone could differentiate from Amazon. And as we got bigger, the data started to speak for itself, right? As you, when you're young at this company, you sort of have to say, look, we're going to get product market fit. I promise. And people use their judgment. Oh, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Would I use this? Would my wife use this? Whatever. Um, and I use the gender dynamic there deliberately because most of the investors that we pitched were men, um, just the nature of the venture capital industry. And you know that self-referential investment decision stops when you've got hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. You're looking at the facts of, hey, is this something that's resonating with customers or not? And I think, you know, for us, that dynamic has been favorable in terms of how investors evaluate the company. And I think since then, uh, I don't know if it was the last valuation, but I think it's valued at more than a billion dollars now, the company. Is that right? Um, that is. What's, so what is like the grand vision? I know you mentioned like Unilevers and the Procter and Gambles. Is it, is it that? Like, I know they always say, have an exit strategy, have an idea of how you want this business that you're creating to, to do an exit. Is that something that's ever crossed your mind or... Um, I'm sure it has, but has it been something that's really been heavy on your mind in terms of we're going to focus on going this route or, or is it just, you know, kind of as it comes, it comes. So I don't know who the, they are in that sentence that says, they say you should have an exit strategy. In my opinion, you build a great business and there are lots of viable options. And I am not a fan of going into a business that you don't want to run for 50 years. Like, I'm 34 years old. If I was running this thing when I was 84, that would be awesome. I love this company. And I believe that we can grow at a faster than market clip for potentially 50 years. Um, and I understand the need to get liquidity for our shareholders. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, and you know, I'm a fiduciary and I understand that. And it's a category with a lot of M&A and we've had interest in the past. But I think for me, the North Star is create a really, really great business. And the better business that we're able to create, the better our exit options will be if we choose to go that route. But right now, I mean, I am laser, laser focused on how do we create the best possible experience for every single Grove customer? Because if we create an amazing experience for our customers, that'll create a great business for us. And so for me, it's sort of like when I think about it, I'm not thinking about the exit at all. I think about how do I create the best team, get the best team, get them aligned and treat them well. Because if I do that, those folks are going to take amazing care of our customers and our customer experience. And when, when that happens, you're going to have a great business. And so I, I think the focus on the exit, it's, it's a bit of a red herring and candidly can be a bit of a distraction because we, we should all be focused on our customer, not, not a potential acquirer or a potential exit. You know, sort of piggybacking off of what Patrick just said and what he had mentioned early on, which was, you know, this idea of making money while doing good, right? 
And a lot of times, and you know, I don't know if this is your experience, but that's why I'm asking this question. A lot of people that are either investors or advisors or board members or whatever don't necessarily always share that exact same vision as the founder and the CEO. A lot of them are like, you know what? I invested my money. I want my money back at an X number return, whatever. Others are like, you know what? I love your mission, but you know, at the end of the day, if I make the same amount of money back, that's great. And if you've accomplished your mission, fantastic. What has your relationship been like with your investors, your advisors, your mentors, board members, etc., while still running this company? Look, at the end of the day, you're the CEO. You make the calls. But you also have that fiduciary responsibility to these folks and to your employees and your staff who come in day in and day out. And like you kind of mentioned with Lehman Brothers, I'm sure they want that, you know, payday at the end of the day. So how do you manage all of those different things while still being laser focused on creating a great business and, you know, being sustainable and educating people about sustainability and sustainable products? I am really lucky to have a business where all of those things are aligned. And, you know, that was on purpose. I am hyper competitive. I care a ton about the environment and I am hyper competitive. And so Grove is built in such a way where our commercial success and our impact, they are, they overlap completely. And one of the things about which I am most proud is the DNA of the company, just like we have awesome people who give a shit about the impact that we have, like really deeply. I recommend everybody go to grove.co backslash sustainability and check out the video that our team put together for Earth Day. They did this like totally unprompted just as a passion project to show the impact that we've had. We are, we have, I think the only uh, regenerative business model in the paper space and seedling. The whole company is plastic neutral, which is a totally revolutionary concept in our space, one that produces a ton of plastic. And so we will pull, we will save more than a million pounds of plastic this year with stuff like concentrates and glass vessels and refills. And we'll pull several million pounds of ocean bound plastics out of oceans and rivers, like and rivers that feed into oceans um, through our business model. The whole company runs carbon neutral. Like we've done a lot of amazing stuff. And none of that stuff has been like mandated by me, right? It's the company's DNA. And, you know, it goes back to companies are driven by people. And, you know, if you want to get the best from folks, you don't get the best from folks in my experience by saying, hey, you, you can make a little more money, you work a little harder. But people care a lot more about a mission than they do about a dollar in my experience. And so I think that part of the way we've been able to recruit a world-class team retain talent really well in a challenging competitive market like San Francisco um, and be able to be an industry leader in scale is that we have a differentiated set of goals and a differentiated way of operating. And that I don't view as a liability or sort of a financial, a financial baggage. I view it as a sustainable competitive advantage. And I think, you know, I was careful to pick investors who believe in that too and who can see the future in our category and know that the future in our category is going to be built by brands that care and those brands that care are going to be built by people that care so for me i think it's a it's a total myth that uh that sustainability and real mission focus and real profit focus are mutually exclusive i think there's there's real opportunity and we're not the only ones who've done it uh to create business models where those two things are very closely aligned. Um, I'm not sure how much time you have between running your business and having a family and, you know, to do other things. But um, I guess uh, as a business leader, um, do you like what kind of content do you consume just to stay aware or just educated on things that are happening in the world or things that you're curious about, like books, podcasts, like what's your favorite, I guess, pieces of content? I'm a voracious consumer of content. I will say I love the New York Times. Grew up in New York and I've just, I've always loved the New York Times. Um, but that's more sort of brain candy, I think, than, than business relevant most of the time. The, the business relevant pieces of content that I consume, I've listened to an insanely high number of podcasts, probably thousands, particularly in the early days. Um, it would be unusual if I didn't listen to you know, at least an hour of podcast content every day. And some of those pieces of advice have been among the most invaluable in forming our approach. I remember 
um, Reed Hoffman saying on an entrepreneurial thought leaders podcast that I probably listened to in 2013. If you didn't launch, if you're not embarrassed when you launch your beta, you launch too late. And I was like, oh, we should always be launching early. I still think that like, yeah, totally okay to take risk, right? You should always be embarrassed at the thing you're launching because that maximizes for learning. And that's always the thing that I think is most important. Um, Of the great business books that I've read, though, there are a number that I really love. I think my favorite simple lesson is from The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, which is that because of that book, I try to approach my job every day as though today is my first day on the job as the CEO. And CEO Stu from yesterday got fired. I'm here today emotionally divorced from all of the decisions, good or bad, that were made in the past. And what are the right decisions to make today? And I think that approach is hard, hard to take, right? Because we are emotionally attached to the things that we've done. But it's also really necessary in a business that changes rapidly. And you know, any business that touches technology today changes really rapidly. And so that's, that's probably my, my favorite distilled business learning that I've gotten from books. You know, I'm curious because now you've been an investor, you've been an operator, and you've been a business leader, and you've seen how a company grows and all the challenges that come with it. And I'm sure that you would have done things. Maybe I'm not sure. Maybe you might have not done things differently. But what would be your one piece of advice to someone who right now is sitting, they have a lot more time because of COVID perhaps, um, and they are thinking about starting a business. They don't want to work for anybody. They want to go pursue their own dreams. What should they be doing, right? Like what is, what's step one, what's step two, step three? Like this, this, it could be the smallest thing that they could do, but something practical that we can kind of take away. Yeah. I'm going to answer with something not practical and then I'll answer with something very practical. The not practical, like not, it's practical to do, but it's not like tactical which is make sure it's something you really love because, oh my gosh, in my experience, was it hard, right? You read about these companies that went from zero to really big, really fast. That's the exception, not the rule. And I think there's a lot of amazing entrepreneurs and brilliant people with great ideas who are slogging it out. And Grove seems like an obvious thing in retrospect to a lot of folks. You know, oh, natural products is growing. People are using the internet more. Right, a digital first brand makes total sense. It took us four years to raise our Series A. Right, it was 175 people just at that last moment. Over the first four years, I probably pitched 500. <laughs> like, um, and it's really hard, but I loved it. I still love it, and that's, I don't know, that's invaluable. Right, that makes you keep going. Um, so that's the thing that I would say first is, is most important, and then the second thing I would say is get in front of your consumer. Whoever it is, if it's B2B, find a business customer to call and show them a mock-up that you did in PowerPoint. Um, The sooner you can get product contact with customer, the better. And it's really scary emotionally because, at least in my experience, an idea is awesome in my head. And then I show it to whoever the customer is. And I'm like, customer doesn't think it's as awesome as it seemed in my head. And that can be really embarrassing and really like deflating. But actually, it's an amazing moment of learning. And the sooner you can get that first crappiest reasonable somewhat representation of the product in front of the consumer the sooner you'll understand what need you're really satisfying and how to change to satisfy it and we had to do it you know tens of thousands of times over many years to get it right but can't start can't start too soon in terms of getting your product in front of the consumer yeah I totally agree i'm i'm reading um the war of art right now and uh you know he talks about uh, the resistance and how 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 many times so many people have come close to like completing something, but they never actually get it out there or they never actually like go that next step of putting it in front of people. You know, like he talks about himself as a writer. He he's wrote so many books, but finished it you know in the last mile and just like threw it away because he wasn't sure of it. But you can never be sure of it until you put it out there and you kind of get the feedback. Because at the end of the day, those are the people that are buying your product. It's not you, right? Um, totally right. I have a mantra that I've repeated a million times since I started this company, which is the only way out is through. Like, there is no quit. There's only one way out, which is through. Love that. Awesome. Well, hey, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, you know the, the the you know just kind of like hearing your story of of, of how you built Grove and and 
as as someone that is looking at it from the outside, you know, it's 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 really interesting to see how it's all come together and and um, you know, looking forward to seeing what you do in the next I don't know, five, 10 years, 20 years. I can, I can imagine a lot's changing now. So um, it's going to be exciting to see uh, how everyone sort of adapts to, to a new way of life. Totally. It's a, it's a really interesting time. And I feel grateful, as grateful or more now uh, than ever for the community of customers that Grove is lucky to have and, uh, and for the team that I'm lucky to collaborate with. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stuart. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This was a lot of fun.